Hello and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.iamwomanproject.com.au. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at I Am Woman Project and Facebook. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today we have Jules Allen, an award-winning Australian, youth advocate, motivational speaker and spirited earth mother of four grandchildren, whose life is guided by the philosophy, the more you give, the more you get back. Jules is featured on various TV programs, including Australian Story, MasterChef Australia, prompted by a dare from her kids, The Project and major magazines such as New Idea, and online Women's Weekly and The Collective. Jules is writing her first book, You Think, From Cyber-Stalking to Self-Harm. The book takes an insightful, honest and practical approach to the big issues faced by today's youth while offering real-world solutions. I am sure you are going to love the honest chat with Jules Allen. Let's tune in. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the I Am Woman Project podcast series. My name is Sonia Hickey and today I'm delighted to have parenting expert Jules Allen with me. Jules, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Sonia. Jules, you were um, recently on MasterChef and I know people will be thinking to themselves, I know her. But (laughs) just by way of background, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. I mean, MasterChef, I guess, was was one part of my life. Um, prior to that, I guess I had 20 years of experience in working with young people and their families in crisis in different um, domains. And I also have had 31 foster kids. Um, I have three adopted children and one of my own who are all in their late teens now. So that was fun. <laughs> wow. Wow, 31 foster children. How long on average do you have foster children for? Oh, look, it varies. Um, some would come for a weekend, others would stay months and um, some have stayed since the time I got them. So wow. it's yeah, very different with each one, yeah. And it's this connection through fostering that put you in touch with Deborah Lee Furness, who's also very famous for being married to Hugh Jackman. And I'm going to yeah. ask you about dinner with the Jackmans because I know you had dinner with them some time ago. I did. I had dinner with um, Deb and Hugh probably about three weeks ago. And I, I, I am lucky enough to have worked quite closely with Deb and I've met Hugh several times now and he's absolutely delightful, <laughs> painfully you know, delightful. I can't, I can't possibly fancy him because I like Deborah so much. Yeah, and that's what happens. You know what he does? When he, every time he stars in a role, and, and it's always with some gorgeous, you know, co-star, 
the first thing he does is introduce them to Deb and Deb takes them out for lunch. <laughs> By the end of lunch, the people are so in love with Deb that they wouldn't dare go near Hugh. That's their strategy and it's foolproof. Yeah, but there sure. is just, just a little bit of inside information. There is only one person that he's not allowed to do a movie with. Do you oh, know who that's? No, I <laughs> Have a guess. Oh. Angelina. Oh, not Angelina. <laughs> not yeah. heartbreaker Angelina. Yeah. Not <laughs> She's off the list. <laughs> That's very funny. We mm. are totally off topic though. I what? want to, I know you've got some some other projects lined up with uh, with Deborah and I want to talk to you about those um, in earnest as well. Um, but when when we spoke offline, we we talked at length about you finding yourself in the position now where your kids um, have left home, are leaving mm. home, and it's the start of a new chapter for you. Yeah, it is. Look, I, I was in a very quite a strange situation at the end of last year when um, three of my kids were ready to leave the nest and my mother became quite unwell, so I decided to move to Victoria to help support her. Um, so I went from having three kids at home to none in a place where I didn't know anyone and I couldn't, what struck me so much was how little we talk about that transition as women and it is possibly one of the, the hugest transitions we go to from being a mother to being in the world on our own again and it's, there's so much, so many layers to that from grief to, to fear to, you know, questioning your own capacity in the world as a person separate to being a mother um, and I was astonished that I'd, I'd gotten to this place and I'd heard so little about it. Um, and I, I had to reach out to people and say, did you experience this? Did you sit in the lounge room and stare at the wall and cry all night? Did you? And how long does this last? <laughs> Is this normal? Um, and it, it, it was normally. I spent a good six weeks to two months just crying randomly. Wow. No, you know, it was just grief. Yes. You know, I'd gone from noise and madness and that filled a big part of my day. And so there was two parts. One was grief and the other part was I actually had to look at myself and I had not done that in a very long time. Because so much of your um, your working life has been tied up with, with parenting and nurturing young people and mentoring young people, mm. as part of this process did you sort of think to yourself, oh, I'm quite heartbroken, I don't know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, I don't, D did you question your part? Yeah, look I did, that was a, that was a big part of it for me is I, I trying to figure out where I was to head from there and my disconnection from parenting. I actually questioned whether working with children and, and working in, in that realm was for me anymore. I thought, do I, do I just completely branch out into something disconnected in order to recreate myself? And for me, what I discovered is that, that I had, you know, without being arrogant, I had 20 years of experience with thousands and thousands of teenagers and, for most parents, the only interaction they have with a teenager is their own and it's really confronting and quite overwhelming and, and terrifying at times and I have this wealth of knowledge um, that I almost felt an obligation to share and, and to walk away from that and leave this pool of knowledge to me felt quite um, selfish. So, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, how do I then redesign this? So now I'm doing a lot of public speaking um, with young people and with parents and consulting on, on that level, I guess, and I'm, I'm finding it really enjoyable. Are you still working in the school system or are you doing more of a one-on-one a -on -one with families? No, I'm working on a much larger scale. Um, a public scale. Yeah, so working um, in public speaking to large groups of sort of three or 400 or 500 and um, whether that be parent groups or in schools or 
um, wherever anyone will have me, really. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, massive gala events like I was at the other night and, and the work I do with Deb. So it's just, I, I, you know, and I, I naturally sort of thought, well, I'll, at one point in my grief, I thought, well, I'll just get another foster kid and that'll fix everything. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> some sanity came in at one point, but I realized that in order to help the masses, I would do that better if I wasn't helping one. I don't know if that makes sense, but to tie myself down with parenting um, was not allowing me to sort of travel to, to reach out to as many people as I could. So now I'm taking advantage of that and traveling around a lot and trying to get to as many places as I can to sort of yeah, meet people and, and talk with them. And you were recently on Roadshow, I don't know if that's what you want to call it, in New South Wales. Do yeah. You, can you tell us about that? Uh, look, I was so blessed to have been invited on this Roadshow around rural New South Wales and I was with the, the Reverend Graham Long from the Wayside Chapel and this beautiful young filmmaker who was Australian, junior, junior Australian of the year. And, and we went around and did exactly what I was just talking about. We engaged with people and we talked about the importance of service and the importance of help and what I got most out of that road show is we decided that a Q&A for the most part of our interaction was the best way we could address people's um, key issues and I learnt so much from that about what young people actually want to hear about, what are the things they're wanting to know, how do they want to change their lives, what what issues are affecting them. So it was, it was almost like a research thing for me to, to, to realise that public speaking is great but for me it has to be a conversation rather than... Young people get dictated to enough. They get spoken to enough. You know, a part of it has to be about hearing them. So it was a really incredible learning for me and I was quite humbled actually. So what are some of the issues that are facing our, our younger people? Oh, gosh. Um, I know the, you, you talk about depression as being one of mm-hmm. your greatest concerns. Yeah, look, I think the lack of resilience amongst young people is quite concerning these days and I could go on for hours about my thoughts around how we got to this place. Um, I'm pretty solution focused and um, I'd like to know, you know, focus on how we get out of here. But depression is definitely an issue. Um, and, you know, just a very quick example. Many years ago, I worked in a very low socioeconomic school and, and kids had to fight for everything they had, including, you know, down to the shoes on their feet. But they were essentially really happy and quite tough and, and life threw its curveballs and they bounced it off. But the laughter was really obvious then a few years later I worked in a very very elite expensive k-12 school what struck me very quickly was the incredibly high rates of depression and this is in kids as young as nine who were talking to me about suicide and self-harm and and it took me literally 12 months of cross comparing the two schools and the different things that were presenting for me to come up with my own opinion around how that had happened and, and what had happened is the kids in the sort of wealthier school were quite indulged anything they wanted they really got um, so they didn't have to strive for anything which caused this incredible complacence there was no sense of achievement there was no sense of having to achieve anything and complacence is the first stepping stone towards depression and so it, it was an incredible I'll never forget what I learned in that time um, and as much as we love to give to our children, we're in a massively consumerist society and it doesn't actually serve them. Mm. You know, that instant gratification is an instant gratification which goes as quickly as it arrives. Mm. You know, a hard-fought gratification comes from striving to something, earning it and then hanging on to it. Mm. And um, they're two very different things. And so, and, and kids wanted to know, um, they were actually really interested in how service affects your life. 
How does that affect your life? How can you help other people? A lot of them ask that question, how do I help someone else? And I had to draw it right back to basics and say, it's not about changing the world. It's not about running an orphanage in Cambodia as much as that's valuable work. It's about looking around you right now and going, who's that person sitting on their own over there and how can I change that for them? How do I bring them back into the fold? That's kindness in a nutshell is always looking within your periphery and going, what can I do right now? And there's always something. Mm. And so it was really nice to hear that a lot of them wanted to know what they could do. Um, and then, you know, in, in, in that lies also, in my opinion, the solving to a lot of the issues they're facing. Because the moment you become other focused, you know, whatever it is you're dealing with becomes far more minimal and often obsolete in the yes. face of what you're dealing with. So. Yes. Yeah. Now you're in the process of, of writing a book. Does it touch on, on some of this stuff? Is it a, is it a, is it a book for teenagers? Is it a book for parents? Look, it's a book for both. Right. <laughs> um, I didn't want to miss out. I, I've read a lot of teen books over the years and a lot for parents. And at the moment, I, one of the biggest issues is there's a massive disconnection between you know, our generation and young people. And so one of the things I wanted to address was the, the reconnection. And in doing that, my book is double-faced. So one side is advice to teenagers on very specific issues. And the flip side is advice to parents on the same issues so that they get an understanding of where each other are coming from um, and the advice that's being given. I'm interested in what you just said about a disconnection between the mm. generations. Now, um, I don't want to ask you how you think we got to that point, although I think, you know, probably most of us, most of us as parents have our own theories on that. Mm. Um, but most of us as parents are keen on keeping that connection. Mm. What What sort of advice... Can you give us around that? I think one of the greatest I – have, I have small children. One of my greatest mm -hmm. fears is that when they hit those teenage years, how do I ensure that I'm cool enough or yeah, approachable sure. enough for them to still talk to me? Yeah. Look, I think that's a very real concern. And if we're to be honest as parents, every single parent has that concern. Um, there's sort of two things I found were really valuable. We had – chunks of time in our house every single night where there was no digital stuff allowed. Phones were off, TV was off, dinner time was huge for us. And we would sit around and we would chat. And I would do a lot of listening because the kids sort of banter back and forwards. And um, that, was in, that was crucial that time, that at some point during the day we all connected and came into being with one another. Um, and the other really simple thing for me is... I know this sounds bizarre, but I discovered on MasterChef that one of the greatest ways to stay connected to your kids is through food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's bizarre, but if you think about it, the kitchen is the heart of the home. <clears throat> it's the one place where everyone comes for a purpose. And if you can expand on that, my kids were always involved with the cooking. Someone was chopping, someone was stirring, someone was doing that. Without them knowing, I mean, they sort of thought it as jobs, but without them knowing, they were laughing, engaging, we were staying connected. And we've always pancake Sundays, everyone on a Sunday's in the kitchen making pancakes. Tiny little things like that maintain a connection. You know, people stop making their kids lunches when they hit high school thinking they're old enough. That to me is the crucial time that you pack their lunch every day because at some point during the day they're reminded of you. Yes. 
Yes. For me, um, I like what you said about the Sunday ritual. For me, remembering my childhood and, <coughs> and creating a childhood for my own kids, that's that's something mm. I'm conscious of. I want those Friday night hamburger night. I yeah, want totally. once a month fish and chips with <laughs> grandpa and grandma on the beach type yep. rituals that they'll remember as they get older. They're so important and they're often around food. Christmas is around food. Yes. Easter's around. Everything is around food. Don't ever underestimate the role that food plays. I mean, I said to anyone, whether it be child or adult, and one of the first things I ask a child who I'm, you know, seeing maybe is having trouble connecting, I'll go, what's your favourite dinner? Straight up, I get an idea of the child. They And the first thing they do is they look to the sky and they're not necessarily thinking about the food. They're thinking about the smell of it, who makes it, where it's made and what that place means to them. Yes. So they're connecting with the place that they belong. It's such a simple thing, but we overlook it. I can think back to my childhood and there was a certain smell when I walked in the door on a Saturday and my mother's Asian and she'd cook all day Saturdays. I'd walk in on a Saturday and that smell was like a blanket. It just wrapped around me. Now, I don't know what the meal was and it doesn't matter. (laughs) But when I think of food and growing up, the the role it plays is enormous Mm. and it's a massive point of connection that we have to our families. Mm. So you're right, food traditions involving kids in food, you know, letting them cook the food, disastrous as it may be, you know, because they'll think it's awesome. If you get a kid to make a veggie patty, they will think it is the best veggie patty that's ever been made on this planet. Mm. You make the veggie patty for them and they'll be poking it around the plate going, really? You know? (laughs) There's broccoli in there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I can see it. So that's one of my personal favourites anyway for connection is food. Jules, you talk a lot um, in your blogs about your own delinquency and how that prepared you for the path that you're on. Was there ever an inkling in those in those years that you might find yourself on this path, being able to make a difference in so many lives? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I, I recall quite clearly being about 16 or 17 and um, I was way off track. I was probably bordering on, you know, being addicted to drugs and alcohol and suffering from depression. I was all over the place. And I remember seeing this social worker or coming to know this social worker who was doing, doing amazing work with young girls. And I not only wanted her to help me, I wanted to be her. And I wanted to engage in the work that she was doing and help, I guess, people. I, I just never forget thinking, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to do the work she's doing. And it wasn't until years later that I thought back to that moment and thought, oh, my God, I'm doing it. Wow. So, yeah, it was It was not – nothing I've ever done has been well thought out. Everything I've done has been by accident. But it's funny how those tiny little seeds that plant themselves, you know, we water them along the way and, yeah. But it wasn't until much later in life that you did your formal study, was it? No, I got thrown out of uni um, <laughs> several times between 18 and 21. I, my maturity was – being, I was also trying to be a rock star and being a rock star and being a uni student, they don't go hand in hand. Late nights and assignments. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I was, I was, yeah, I was not in a great place. So I didn't do my formal study till I was 30, um, which I look back on now as working full time. I think I had three, I don't know, a bunch of kids at home and I was studying full time as well. And, I, you know, it's funny you look back and go, how the heck did I do that? <laughs> But I did, you know, you do it. And I, I was just, I was ready to study and I was, yeah, I had a bit of a clearer direction around or idea about what I wanted to do. So hence I studied social science and 
um, yeah, it was great. But in saying that, it um, it gave me a certificate. But, but you know, with with no disrespect to the tertiary system, the the line of work I'm in, what I've learned has literally been in the field and has been concreted by being faced with another teenager and another teenager and another teenager. Not what I read in books because they're all so different. Mm. You know, I never deal with one. To, I would never apply the same rules to one teen as the other because it just they're different. Mm. Yeah. People. They're people. Yeah, they're awesome people too. <laughs> I like them. With um with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you might have done differently? Um, yeah, yeah. I would have and I still have to be conscious of it today, I wouldn't have placed so much emphasis on someone else's opinion of what I should do in life. Because I had a very clear understanding of what I wanted to do. And I allowed other people who I guess in, in a sense intimidated me into believing that I wasn't capable of that and I regret that and I'm conscious of it now when I say I'm going to do something and someone sort of smirks and laughs and goes oh good luck why is that person's opinions greater than my own mm. you know when I'm I'm me I know what it is I want to do so yeah that yeah that would be my advice is not to listen to other people who restrict you in your belief of yourself who has been your greatest influence over the years um, I've had a couple. I would have to say the most consistent would be my brother. Um, we're incredibly close. We're like twins. And he just has, well, for one, a very sound understanding and tolerance of me. <laughs> um, Everybody has, needs someone like that, don't Yeah, you? totally. But in, in that, he's taught me, you know, what, what I needed in life was that tolerance. And so I've therefore been able to learn the value of it and provide it to other people. For the most part, not always, but I've realised the importance of that tolerance and non-judgment. And, um, and another one is the gentleman I met a few weeks ago, Reverend Graham Long, who to me just typified exactly the person I want to be in life and, and the way in which I want to work. You know, I don't help people because I can fix them because in people don't need to be fixed because they're not broken. You know, they need to be met mm. and they need to be heard and... And he summed that up for me. So he's been an incredible inspiration for me. Yeah. Love him. What, what kind of stresses keep you up at night? I mean, now your children have basically left home. You've, mm. you've, you've done your job as a parent. It's your job now maybe to be a friend. What, mm. what, what worries you about this next step for you? Um. Or life in general? Yeah, look, this, I mean, you never stop worrying as a parent. I'm much better now at letting go of that, much better, because um, we, we can't control it. So, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, when faced with yourself, you're faced with all the doubts that come with your own abilities. Um, that can keep me awake at night. And, and whether I'm living a very honest life is really important to me and making sure what I present is congruent with who I am. But I think what ultimately, I was thinking about this, what really keeps me awake at night is when someone shamed me. And that will play over in my head because something's made me feel not okay about the interaction with that person. And, and I find the reason I know I've been shamed is because I'm thinking about the next time I meet that person. I'm already preparing my counter argument to what they say to me. And that tells me a lot about my relationship with that person. And I'm getting much better at not having those types of people in my life, but they do come in all the time. You know, I deal with a lot of people and. Well, you so, have, you have quite a public life as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't, 
when you have a public life, you do have to present as quite strong in, and which you can be, but you can also be insanely sensitive. And it's not until you get home and until you switch off from the public life that you then have to digest the things that have affected you in your interactions with people. Um, and I guess that's the thing that keeps me awake at night is at times feeling uncomfortable about an interaction. And it's often got something to do with shame, I've found. So how do you get yourself over something like that? Do, what self-care mechanisms do you have to, to nurture yourself through those times when you feel troubled? Um, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> well, I only just recently discovered the whole self-care thing <laughs> when I was going through my crying every day stage. One of my girlfriends said, you need to learn how to self-nurture. And I thought the only thing that came to mind when she said that was running a bath. <laughs> And I thought, oh, God, I hate baths. Does that mean I have to have a bath every day? All I thought was bath and a candle. I'd be sitting there bored going, really, is this it? I've, I've seen it. Relax, relax. Yeah. Um, look, I have, you know, I, it, it comes back to not really allowing people's opinions to affect me too much unless I really value that person. Um, and the other thing I've always done, and, and this comes from someone who's suffered from depression for a long time when I was younger and, and when you've suffered from depression, it's, it will sit there dormant and it will wait until you drop your guard and it will, it will creep back up again and I'm conscious that that's what it's doing. So for me, in facing everything in life and, and, and anything that's challenging, there's three things I do and it's eat well, sleep well and exercise well. And so if I'm feeling a little bit more stressed, I sleep more, I exercise more and I focus on eating even better. So... Those three things for me not wouldn't work for everyone, but that for me really helps. Um, Jules, I, I want to wrap this up in a moment. I just have a couple more questions for sure. you. Sure. Because you uh, speak the language of teenagers much more fluently than than most of us grown ups. Um, yeah. Are there three sort of golden nuggets you can give us in in dealing with our own and dealing with those in the community around us? Um, to make our relationships better, more beneficial? Um, look, the three things that I've found really helpful and there were different bits of advice that I picked up along the way. You know, you pick up bits of advice all the way along but the things that stay are the ones that work and one thing I found, and this is the hardest one, is love them most when they least deserve it. That is incredibly difficult to do but if you can do that, the benefits of that are astonishing. You know, when they're really pushing the boundaries, you know, you cook their favourite dinner, you put the clean sheets on, you watch a movie, you curl up on the couch and you, you stay close and you give them a lot of love. Um, the other one is teenagers behave they, the way they do not to affect us. They behave the way they do because of what's going on for them. So it's very easy to take it personally, especially when you're told where to go. And I can't tell you how many times I've been told where to go, you know, <laughs> or that you've ruined my life or I hate you or... They're not doing that to affect us. That's showing us what's going on for them. Mm. Um, so you really have to remove yourself personally with teenagers because it's got nothing to do with you. Um, and the other bit is you teach people how to treat you and this applies very much to teenagers as well. You know, if ever I'm feeling that someone is disrespecting me, that someone is treating me poorly, I have a choice about putting myself in front of that person and I have a choice around saying that's not acceptable. And that applies to teens as well. You know, my kids know what's acceptable and what's not because I don't tolerate what's not acceptable. It's as simple as that. And if I am, if I'm finding myself in the face of it, I have to, I have to question what part I've had to play in it. Mm. So 
yeah, teach people how to treat you is a really important one. Very useful, the three of them. Mm, they are. I'm sure um, that the people listening in will will want to know more about you, will perhaps want to contact you. What's the mm -hmm. best way to get hold of you? You can jump on my website, julesallen.org. Uh, my email address is on the website and I always respond to people's emails. Um, maybe not on the same day, but I make it my mantra to respond to people personally. And the book is due out? Hopefully by December this year, hoping for a pre-Christmas launch on that one. Um, yeah, and it's not... It's not a psychologically based book. It's based on my experience, um, which is a little different Wonderful. to people's. Yeah, yeah. Look Hopefully. forward to it. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you very much for your time, Jules. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll have you um, in the series again sometime soon. Yeah, it'll be a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email to jennifer at iamwomanproject.com.au or Twitter at iamwomanproject and we will get right back to you. If you were listening to this podcast on iTunes, please make sure you leave a review or rating about the show. We would love to hear your thoughts. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please take care.